Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for supporting the show and hanging out with us again on another wonderful Monday night. And shout out to some of the uh, patrons who upgraded their accounts last uh, week to help out and help support the show. And if you want to do the same thing, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that link and sign up. But we'll get to more adverts later. Joining us, as always, is the ever-faithful, ever-on-time, and ever-jubilant and happy Henry Sledge. Henry, how you doing tonight, fellow? I'm doing okay, man. How are you doing, Don? <laughs> I'm doing well. Oh, it's been a crazy, crazy uh, last couple of days at work, but I'm not going to get into that here because, well, it's not <laughs> relevant to what we're doing. But uh, no, we don't want to get into the crazy personal stuff that no. each of us are dealing with. No, not at all. So, but yeah, we're just happy to be here. Happy to have you guys join us once again. And uh, we're going to go to the other side of the pond. Uh, we do a lot of PTO talk here. We do a lot of air battle talk here. But prior to the show, I got together with Jeff and Henry, which, by the way, Jeff is away this week and possibly next week, but he will be returning very soon. But uh, before, a few hours ago, we were like, well, what are we going to talk about tonight, fellas? And uh, Henry had a great idea, and it never occurred to me, and partially because after doing some research, this battle, this raid, of which we we're going to talk about for a little bit here, sadly, it's kind of gone down as a very forgotten battle and conflict the Canadian Army, even though it was sadly resulted in being one of their deadliest battles. And to think that worldwide, um, a major ally such as the Canadians in Canada, that one of their bloodiest battles is kind of overlooked and forgotten by history. And so praise to Henry for wanting to do this topic. And so let's get into it a little bit, Henry. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, August of, uh, of course, today's August 22nd, but here within the last few days, we're, we're 80th anniversary of uh, August of 1942, which was, we know what we talked about last time, our beloved Pacific Theater was Guadalcanal, but tonight we were thinking about heading to the shores of France and talking about Dieppe. Which... Sadly and ironically, the irony had come later after the result of this raid, but it was originally codenamed Operation Jubilee. And yeah. what yeah. I found interesting researching Operation Jubilee is as the war was progressing and as the RAF was limited on things to do because the um, Royal Air Force had their own bombardment branch that kind of operated kind of separately from the from the dogfighters, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. They were occupying the time of the RAF by having them going over French uh, German-occupied France and strategically attacking areas. Mm -hmm. And Henry can attest to this because him and uh, Jeff are the resident um, aviation guys here. But apparently Germany was kind of premiering or up and steaming on a more advanced fighter than what the RAF had. Is that correct, Henry? Well, I mean... It 42, the Germans would have been flying the BF-109E, or Emil, to your code name Emil, you know, you which is just the, the name for the, the letter E in the German alphabet. But 
Yeah, they would have had BF 109Es probably. Uh, well, and they would have been moving on. I don't, I'm not sure when the BF 109F came into service. Um, I had a really good book on the air war, on the, the air actions over DF that I read many years ago. And just disclaimer to anybody, to, to our listeners tonight. I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on DF. Don, I don't think you would call yourself one either. I uh, learned everything well, I'm about to tell you about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> So it's fresh no, in my mind. Well, but hey, man, we have that passion for the subject, right? Well, I mean, we everybody talks about D Day. Yep. You know, which obviously was June August seventh, nineteen forty two. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess it depends <laughs> on, on which which side of the globe about, that D Day means to you. The, are we going to talk about the B seventy two bomber? <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. I'm just kidding. No, I mean so. The Germans would have been fielding the BF-109s, okay? So the British, by 1942, I mean, the Spitfire, they might have had the 5B by 1942. Um, again, had I had more time to, to re refresh my memory on the, uh, you know, they were Spitfires. Not sure if they were Mark 5Bs or still Mark 1s and 2s. I, I think the, the Mark 1s and 2s had evolved by 1942. Well, the reason I bring it up is this actually plays a key role into the development and the decision-making behind the entire operation of Operation Jubilee, which I was kind mm -hmm. of surprised to find out. So for those of you playing along at home, uh, much like myself who just discovered this most recently, while the... Uh, RAF was making these strategic airstrikes. Apparently, these German Luftwaffe planes were a little more advanced to the point where the British had a hard time fighting them off in one-on-one, two-on-one skirmishes. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to come up with a way to invite the Luftwaffe out in mass, if you will. How can we bring these guys out in mass, bring out a majority of their inventory, if you will, close enough to us that we can, you know, fly reinforcements back from Maine, you know, mainland England, if you will, and try to eliminate as many as the uh, Luftwaffe's inventory as possible. And so they right. came up with Operation Jubilee, which is, let's take a bunch of guys, land them over here on this coast, draw out the Luftwaffe in, in the efforts that they're going to try to strafe and attack the landing crafts, and then we can just take everything we have and have a big air battle and hopefully reduce their numbers in a fashion that we can continue to do, you know, air raids over occupied France with less damage to us in future battles. Pretty much. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> you know, unlike you, man, I did some fact finding today. I watched some things that I was able to, to, uh, shoehorn in while I was at work, sure. uh, which I can do fortunately and still get my job done on D up because I've always been really intrigued by it. There were the facts, the, the numbers I found. Of course, numbers are always going to vary. There were 1,200 Allied aircraft involved in, in the DF raid. Uh, British, Canadian, there were even some American. Uh, now, they would have been, I think they would have been like the Eagle Squadron guys. Kind of like the Lind Lease guys? Huh? Kind of like the Lind Lease guys? Yeah, I mean, it's not like they were showing up, you know, flying Mustangs, which obviously in 1942 was a little bit early for the most, but they were flying Spitfires. I believe they were 
flying under British colors. Yeah, well, but, I, uh, I guess I misspoke. That's kind of what I meant. We kind of had pilots on loan before we actually got involved, and so that's right. what I meant by the loan right. lease guys. We kind of loaned them pilots as well. I had another another figure that said the numbers of aircraft involved were more like 800. So 800 to, to, to 1,200, okay, on, still, on the Allied side. That's still quite a substantial aerial dogfight battle, if you will. It is, and <clears throat> from from the information I came upon, I don't think it almost as I as I watched and educated myself on it, it almost reminded me like you know D Day. Skip ahead to June of forty four when mm-hmm. when D Day, with the mass of naval and army and ground activity going on at D Day, there really was not a whole lot of aerial activity. The Luftwaffe just didn't come out. Now to get get away from D-Day because that's not what we're here to talk about, to get back to D-Up, it was from what I came, from what I learned, um, sort of a similar dynamic. I mean, yep. there were there were a few uh, sorties by the Germans, but not en masse like they hoped. I mean, there you know, there were not these clouds of FW-190s and 109s and JU-88s and, you know, there just wasn't this mass level response that the Allies had hoped for that would then give, you know, our guys a chance to to really get some aerial scores. Um, I think, well, in fact, I don't want to jump into it too early, but aircraft lost. You know, if, if you go by the 1,200 Allied aircraft that, that we put up for the DF raid, the Allies lost. One number I saw was 106. You know how many aircraft the Germans lost? No. 48. Wow. So and yet, it's not considered a failure on the part of Allied Air. Yeah, it's just it's kind of saddening and a little astonishing to think that the numbers were so tilted against us, considering, as we just said, this entire mission was kind of dreamt up and organized with this one goal in mind, which is let's try to you know eliminate as many planes from the Luftwaffe's inventory as possible, and then to come around and have those numbers before we even get to the the landing numbers um, mm-hmm. it's kind of yeah i mean the real tragedy is as we know was for the canadians once the guys got ashore uh, and then you're talking about a massive loss of life probably i, I think it's called uh the worst in canadian history yeah and um as we we're saying earlier not only you know it kind of I don't know if it was done purposefully, but afterwards you can kind of look at it. Um, when you're looking at the landing beaches, the way they're split up into seven beaches, uh, the way in which the landing was coming in, and, and almost the shape of the landing area, it's very it's very reminiscent of when you're looking at comparing it to D-Day and the fact that it happened, what, two years prior. Yes. And by the way, this was, outside of you know anything going on in Africa and all that, this was the biggest campaign put forth by, you know, the British since Dunkirk. I mean, this was kind of their, mm-hmm. their, their next big give it a go and let's see what happens type thing. And the bonus on this raid, you know, the other bonuses we've all heard before, you know, when it, going to the D-Day thing, we've oh part of the D-Day, you know, Stalin really wanted us to open up a, a second front to alleviate the pressure on the, on the Russians and the Eastern front. Well, that was kind of this was kind of like the precursor to that. They're like, exactly. okay, not only let's open up a second front, 
wasn't as large as Stalin wanted. Two, um, let's kind of, I don't know if this was even put in place or mine. I don't even know if the planning for D-Day had even started being planned yet. I'm assuming it possibly had, but let's, under this hypothesis, let's say that it had. Here's a good dry run for doing a semi-large scale amphibious landing of men and equipment. And um, the aforementioned, hopefully we can take out the Luftwaffe. And so this this operation had multiple potential benefits mm-hmm. if, if things could go right. And now, interestingly enough, here's, here's the number breakdown. You had 5,000 Canadian infantry, 1,000 British troops, and 50 U.S. Army Rangers, which I was surprised to hear about. Now, the reason the Canadians outnumbered the British troops, even though this was a British-led, dreamt-up, and um, pushed-out operation, is the Canadians had sent over so many men, and they're just kind of sitting around staging areas all throughout England. And as we've seen in other stories, other movies, other shows, other books, that uh, when you have guys sitting around training for long periods of time, uh, it affects their morale and, uh, you know, actually softens them up. And so... Basically, the Canadian higher-ups kind of said, hey, we're looking for something to do over here to keep our boys, you know, ready to fight. And mm-hmm. so, for lack of better phrases, the British like, okay, cool, we got something for you to do. And that's primarily the reason is there were so many guys over there in all these different staging areas waiting for an operation that they kind of raised their hand and got put in place. And so, this is kind of what goes on to be why this is the largest operation you know, as we mentioned before, I don't want to give too much away before we get to the ending, but why this goes down in the Canadian history the way it does. That's why there are so many of them there compared to the British and the surprisingly 50 U.S. Rangers. I'm sure they were there kind of on a, you know, uh, get some experience type situation, maybe to lend some Raider type um, Raider type experience. Because interestingly enough, they were it, they were sent down to Orange Beach. And then, mm-hmm. and as we were saying again, their their situation was kind of similar to what they would be, you know, objected to do at Point de Hoc on D Day, which was to go occupy some particular area for a certain amount of time, then get the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. And so those were the numbers going in. Do you know how many ships were involved? Um, I know that there was. I think. Um, about 200 and something airplanes. Let's see here. Um, no, Germany. Germany had, um, no, okay. Yeah, we had 230 ships and landing crafts um, who left mm-hmm. England on the 8th. But no, I'm not sure what the, the numbers were. Well, the, the number of ships, what I what I saw in, in my pulling down some figures on the DF parade was 250. Okay. The largest, a lot of landing craft, as you said, the largest vessel was a destroyer. Those were, were destroyers. There was nothing bigger. If I read it right, there was nothing larger than a destroyer involved in the Dieppe raid. True, which will go to part of the reason why the raid was such a, I don't want to say blunder, but such a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. I guess two years prior, once again, I'm not up to speed on my British military history. Shame on me. We're it's okay, neither am I. But we're winning in this one, man. But, but we're having a good conversation. But apparently the British Navy lost like three to four of their main quote-unquote captain ships, their large-scale battleships, carriers, and what, what have you. And so due to those losses, the British Navy was very reluctant to put their ships within close striking range from German artillery. Mm-hmm. And since this was the case, they 
basically said, hey, we only feel safe sitting X amount of distance from the shore. And so they did not do your standard naval pre-invasion bombardments. They didn't sit out there like we did on Guadalcanal and many of other missions, just bombing the hell out of the island for, you know, eight hours prior. That never happened. And right. so, so now you have these guys who are going to be potentially landing on these beaches in well-fortified, very little pre-invasion molesting going on. And obviously the plan that failed on D-Day as well was the pre-beach bombardment means you have craters to hide in. Let me, let me go back to what you just said. Sure. So British naval losses prior to Dieppe, yep. which obviously would have put the scare into them. Um, what comes to my mind, and I'm assuming you, you, you're you not just limiting that to the ETO, right? You're just talking about wherever. And when I was doing research, they listed the vessels by name, but I just didn't have time to was jot them Prince down. Was it Prince of Wales and Repulse? Yes, and another off one. Off the shores of Singapore? Yes, uh, yes, yeah. correct. They were sunk by Japanese, yes. Right. By and, Japanese G four M and G three M bombers, and this which is, came out of what is present day Vietnam, by the way. The historian referred to them as capital ships, meaning their main vessels, and so right, due to the right. loss of capital ships, in quotes, they were reluctant to lose more of their capital ships on this one operation. But yes, sure. you're absolutely correct; they were sunken off by the Japanese air force, and it's probably. There were others too, but the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, also known as I think that was Force Z, I think was the code name of of them when they were operating the waters off of Singapore. And I may be partially correct or showing my ignorance when I shouldn't have ignorance on that. But you know, and that was early, and I mean that was like right after Pearl Harbor. So yeah, they would have they would have been extremely reluctant to put um, heavy naval resources in harm's way. Yeah, so it was minimized. I'm looking here. It was actually minim- minimized. The pre-landing naval gun support was limited, consisting of only six six Hunt-class destroyers, each with four or six four-inch guns. So that was basically their, their pre-landing invasion bombardment and artillery strike was supported by four- and six-inch guns off of these six different vessels. That's it. Okay. Uh, According... According to what I'm seeing, I'd like to know if what you're looking at corroborates this. You know how many vessels were sunk? Um, I'm not I'm not seeing it here, but go ahead. I What I came up with was one. There was one destroyer lost. Yeah. 106 aircraft. You know how many landing craft were lost? Oh, I can only imagine, especially off of Blue Beach. What, I, what I'm seeing here was 33. 33 yeah. landing craft. Yeah, and so... Um, and i'm i've got a number here on you know armor of course was put ashore to try to help i mean the thing well the big rub is too is um german double crossers or let's say i guess it'd be french double crossers um germany got tipped off like two to three days prior i guess some planning uh leaked out because one of the other objectives to this invasion as we said, the, object, the the primary objective was to pull out the Luftwaffe, try to damage as much as they could. But two, we're going to give our guys objectives as well. So their objectives was, A, to take out any coastal military installations, take, right. take German POWs, look for intel, but also try to um, evacuate 15 freed French resistance fighters who I guess have been feeling pressure by the local Germans who were occupying the area. And so we're kind of trying to go on a you know, a little recovery run as well. And, but uh, hypothetically mission wise, they're only supposed to be in town 
24, 48 hours at the most. It was like a yeah, hit and this, run. This was this was not a get in and establish a major beachhead from which to bridge onto, you know, like obviously D Day. We're supposed to go ashore. We're supposed to establish a major base of supply communications and then press on and advance across France into Germany. That that was not the case with Dieppe at all. It, there was no intention of staying <clears throat> for any length of time at all. It like you say, it was to get in and get out. And so the Germans were tipped off by some uh, double crossers, some bad agents, if you will. And so they started moving um, forces in, reinforcing, moving in land, uh, you know, land troops. They did have a very well secured radar base off the coast, and they had. Um, I don't know if they're 88s, but they had some large-scale artillery pieces a couple miles back from the coast. Once again, very similar to the layout of D-Day. And mm-hmm. so it was a little stacked against us. And from what I understand, we didn't do any early morning dark hour landings. It Basically, the landing started in daylight. Um, as the first landing craft headed towards Yellow Beach, consisting primarily of the number three commandos, they had two kind of two different staging areas. And so the commanders broke off into two groups, if you will. And the farthest North was spotted by a German uh, U-boat and they actually took some fire and they were able to get rid of the Germans, but not without them notifying mm-hmm. the, the home base, if you will, that the, uh, the, the game is afoot. Uh-huh. And so the commandos, the number three commandos, they came in on yellow beach, came in hot and, I can't remember off the top of my head how many of them landed there, but pretty much out of Group A, they held the Germans off for quite a while and ended up surrendering. I think there was about 150 of them. Group B, mm-hmm. only 15 commandos made it to shore. The rest of them were lost either when their landing crafts were sank or when they were strafed coming out of their landing crafts. But out of the second mm-hmm. group, only 15 commandos landed. That's another little piece of information I gleaned. The, 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 you know, what... what when you have exits from the beach, I mean, like, you know, at Vereville and Dog Beach and all that, when you go, when you fast forward ahead to D-Day, you know, what do you have going? You have combat engineers going in trying to clear mm-hmm. paths for, for incoming tanks, armor, whatever, supplies. What I what I read about on D-Up was that the beach exits were actually pretty quickly cleared by the engineers. Yeah. Or don't the British call them sappers? I think I believe I may so. be wrong, but those guys actually did a pretty effective job of clearing the beach exits. But it was just ensuing circumstances that conspired against them to kind of render that null and void. If you, I mean, the terrain. One of the things I watched on on YouTube, World War Two TV about it today because Woody did some great shows on it uh, a couple of years ago, and I mean the terrain is just horrendous man i mean extremely rocky you know well not only rocky and i think it was primarily blue beach or white beach it was one of the two primary beaches rocky mm-hmm. I, rocky's not even an adequate term because do you think rocky you think boulders no this is more like oversized pea gravel you know and gravel probably about the you know rocks about the size of baseballs and smaller think of it like mm-hmm. a ro- the rock equivalent of a ball pit and so mm-hmm. when the tanks came off and heavy artillery they just sank in this stuff I mean, the the rocks and the gravel was not consistent enough to support the weight, and so everything just sank down, and then all those pea gravel and those baseball-sized rocks got in the tracks and basically rendered up the newly minted um, 
oh, what was the primary tank for the British at that time? Was it the Churchill? Yeah, it was the Churchill tanks. Just pretty much got annihilated on on the beach because they, yeah, they could not move. If their if their undercarriages were rendered operationally ineffective, then whatever artillery batteries the Germans had in place, be it 88s, mm-hmm. Germans had 105s too, didn't they? Yeah, but I'm not, like, so yes, they did. They had like four placements inland, but I'm not sure if they were the 88s or the one or what the size okay. was. I just know they whatever had, they had, whatever they had would have had more time to go to work. Yeah, absolutely. Did you? Did you? Did I say how many tanks were lost? No, thirty. That's a that's a lot of tanks in such a yeah. s- small area. <clears throat> it is. I mean, because you're, you know, when you again to compare to, if you look at the map, Dieppe is east. You go much further west. What would have happened for D Day? That operational area was so much larger. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there is. So there's a Canadian military historian named David O'Keefe. He's written at least one book on Dia, maybe two. He brought out he he was saying because it was a really good interview with him with some great footage, current day footage of Dia up in the terrain. He he's been through like 150,000 pages of documents researching his his book it's called one day in august by david o'keefe yeah because i believe up until recently the um, the canadians and the british kept that stuff classified and so for the longest time it was kind of painted as this huge success with the exception of the knowledge of the people who lost people there and mm-hmm. mind you we haven't got into it the large number of these guys who actually sat out the rest of the war in german pow camps a lot of them a lot of them were actually taken prisoner yeah, let me see. Did I get a? We'll get down to that here in a little bit. But to back to your okay. back to your point though, um, it was definitely you know rough sledding, and you know we we kind of talked about Yellow Beach, Orange Beach. The primary mission of Orange Beach was the number four commando, including the aforementioned fifty United States Army Rangers, was conduct the landing six miles in west of uh, Dieppe to neutralize the coastal battery. Um, doo, 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 doo. landing on the right flank and force at uh, 450. As I was kind of saying, this is very, very reminiscent to what they would be doing at Point du Hoc, and maybe this is why they sent the Rangers to kind of train the uh, the number three commandos. But where uh, I was just reading it. Oh, here we go. Uh, they climbed some steep slopes. Now they weren't quite using the you know small grappling hook based ladders but once again they were climbing uh-huh. very steep terrain trying to get to a a target or a um, objective at the top of you know from the lowlands everybody knows in combat mm-hmm. he who holds the high ground holds the advantage well as we saw Absolutely. later on so they were sent along with the number four commandos to to reach this battery and neutralize it at, at top of this steep you know incline um mm. They were successful. This was this was actually the only successful section or occupation or um, objective of Jubilee. This was the only group out of all the beach landings. These were the only guys who made their objective, did what they're supposed to do, and get out and get back on their ships and leave at the predetermined time. And so out of all the beach landings, Orange Beach, consisting of the, the number four commandos and the uh, 50 United States Army Rangers... Um, they did make it back safely to uh, to England, but by this time now, 
as we said, on the way to Yellow Beach because they kind of landed in succession. It was uh, much like D-Day instead of but without the airborne. The Rangers had mm-hmm. a had an objective they needed to meet to help the the preceding or the the additional landing succeed and and uh, landing over at Orange, Yellow Beach, the number three command, as their objective would make things easy as well. But by this time, we know the Yellow Beach, they were spotted by Germans. They had a little naval battle. Um, now we have Orange Beach. We got the Rangers coming in. So by this time, the German army is fully aware of what's going on. And as they try to land on Blue Beach, that's when things will really start going awry. Smoke screens blew away because the change in the, the wind. You got the artillery all lined up. You got the German army had kind of reinforced themselves because once again, they were tipped off ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And so Blue Beach is where um, the number three commandos were halted um, by the German defenders of Blue Beach. And uh, so you had the number three commandos and then you had the Royal Regiment of the Canadians plus three platoons of the Black Watch of Canada and the the artillery detachment were tasked to neutralize machine guns and the artillery batteries protecting the Dieppe Beach. Uh, they were delayed by, for 20 minutes by the smoke screens that should have hidden their assault, but as we said earlier, had lifted in the wind change. And um, so it was kind of, you know, once again, a precursor, if not worse, than what we would experience in certain beaches throughout um, D-Day. The well-fortified German forces held the Canadian forces that did land on the beach. As soon as they reached the shore, the Canadians found themselves pinned against the seawall, unable to advance, with the German bunkers placed to sweep along the back of the seawall. The Royal Regiment and the Canadians were annihilated. Of the 556 men in that regiment, 200 were killed and 264 were captured. So if you're doing the math, only about 30 guys, give or take, either got off the beaches or maybe were assigned to go back with the landing craft to get whatever. But basically all the guy, that damn near everybody was either killed or captured. So yeah, like in, in a six to nine hour period. Now you were, you were just, I think you were just focusing on one regiment and what you said, but in a broader scope at Dieppe at a six to nine hour, six to nine hour period, like a thousand casualties, nine hundred of which were Canadian. Yeah, this was just Blue Beach. Out of the seven beach landings, this was uh, th- those that five hundred was just at Blue Beach. So out of the guys who landed at Blue Beach by themselves, two hundred sixty four were taken prisoner, and two hundred of them were killed. And one thing that is always going to be a byproduct of any major operation like that, Canadians. Let's be even more specific. A lot of people from Quebec apparently see the Dieppe raid as Canadians being used as cannon fodder. Absolutely. By the, you know, so I guess most of them were from the Quebec That's, province. And once again, so I, I guess the unanswerable question, because as we said with the research that we did, Mm-hmm. The Canadian brass volunteered their men to keep them occupied and give them something to do other than training every day. And then obviously the British were happy to do so. I guess the the, the unanswerable question there is where do you place the blame? Yes, they were cannon fodder, but they cannon fodder strictly at the behest of the British Army? Or does can they, can the Canadian Army have to kind of take a little credit for volunteering their guys? 
Absolutely. Well, and the, the other thing is you, you had a school of thought that say, well, it was just a learning experience for, for D-Day. Well, everything was a learning experience for D-Day. And, Including and so you can the Pacific. Say, well, it, the raid may have, if you're keeping a tight focus on what it was, what it was for, what its objectives were, maybe it was a failure, huge loss of life, obviously for the mm-hmm. Canadians. But if you step back, it still was brought about in June of 44 that we did stage a major invasion, i.e. overlord, and get ashore on D-Day. Yep. And again, a major armored and infantry advance uh, you know, into France across Germany. So, I, I mean, I say that it, 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 I'm sort of using that same mode of thought that Forgive me for drawing the comparison, but the guys who died on Peleliu died for no reason. Well, not really. Yeah. You know, they, if they if they hadn't been assigned there, they would have gone somewhere else, but not to stay on that. It was it was one operation that was part of a larger strategic picture that took a long time to come to fruition. Have you seen there's this guy, David O'Keefe, in his book, One Day at August? I really want to read that book because did you in, in the reading you did about it, Don, did you come across any intelligence connection? I don't mean that the Germans had, you know, had a, an idea that this was about to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. Did, did you see anything that referred to intelligence operations and, and that there was possibly an objective relating to that? Did you come across anything like that? No, I, I didn't get to do that deep of a dive. Okay. Here's where I was going with that. So O'Keefe in his book talks about the Enigma machine. There oh, was a yes, 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 yes. Yes, I did. I did. Okay. Three-rotor Enigma machine that the Germans were using for their coding. And the Allies were well on their way to, to you know, to sorting that out and then breaking that. They had pretty good intel that a four-rotor Enigma machine was about to be deployed. And so part of this, and I'm really, man, I'm really simplifying, but one of the objectives of Dieppe was to get their hands on a four-rotor Enigma machine. Yeah, because... Were they able to do that? I don't know. No. I didn't get that far. We 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 failed, and as we know from history, our first real interception of the Enigma machine was not the way it was showed in U571 or whatever it was with Matthew McConaughey. Nay, it was recovered from a sinking German uh, U-boat later on in the war. But the thing about it, a four-rotor Enigma machine, even if you don't know anything about Enigma machines, you can just kind of take what you can maybe visualize off of a typewriter. The reason this is a big deal, I don't know how many characters are on a rotor, but it's basically... Put it in modern day terms, imagine you're a computer hacker and you're trying to hack passwords that are eight characters long. Now, after a while, it's going to get easier mathematically because there's only so many characters can occupy each character on that eight character password. But imagine if you found out mm-hmm. that your enemy or the computer owner was about ready to employ a new password that was able to have 17 characters. Mm-hmm. So now the amount of effort, energy, time, and training and the probability of actually decoding these encrypted messages would be affected tremendously. 
And so that's why it was such a big deal to find out that this four rotor and you know Enigma machine was possibly coming to market for lack of better terms. And so yeah, I did I did hear that and we were not successful. Now we're talking about uh Blue Beach. One of the problems with Green Beach is Green Beach wasn't like a peninsula or a plateau, but the there was it was separated by a body of water, a river. And the only way to get to the objective was over a bridge. But as we said, uh, by Blue Beach and Green Beach time, the Germans knew what was going on. And so they tried and tried and tried to take this bridge. And this was the uh, group of the out of Saskatchewan. Um, mm-hmm. By the time they managed to reach the bridge, the Germans had positioned ma- machine guns and anti-tank guns there, which stopped their advance. With the battalions dead or wounded piling up at the bridge, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Merritt, the commanding officer, attempted to give the attack impetus by uh, repeatedly and openly crossing the bridge in order to demonstrate that it was feasible to do so. However, despite the assault resuming the South Saskatchewanians and the Queen's own Cameron Highlanders of Canada, who had landed beside them, were unable to reach their target. While the Camerons did manage to uh, penetrate further inland than any other troops that day, they were also soon forced back as the German reinforcements rushed to the scene. Both battalions suffered more losses as they withdrew. Only 341 men were able to reach the landing craft to embark. The rest were left to surrender for this part of the battle. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Merritt was awarded the Victorian Cross. Now, it said 340 men were able to retreat, but it did not give us the um, full numbers of how many started the landings. But I'm going to imagine a hell of a lot more than 341. Yeah. And basically this... Well, is... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go, go ahead, ahead, man. Go ahead. Yeah, take a sip of your beer there. This is Arizona Arnold Palmer Light. <laughs> no, I hear you. Um, <laughs> regardless, I mean, we were talking about a massive loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um a quick operation. I mean, and you know, let us let us not ever forget one of the main reasons we do what we do, Don, and that's to to remember the sacrifice and the bravery and honor that. Um, because there were a whole lot of guys that didn't make it through that operation. Yeah, sadly, the exact casualties, as per our friends over at Wikipedia, uh, ground forces lost on the Allied side. Canadians, nine hundred and seven killed. 2,460 wounded and almost as many 1,946 were captured and basically spent the rest of the war in poorly um, managed German POW camps. Uh, so did they ship them back to Germany? The POWs? Um, I'm not sure. They just, they just said that they're in POW camps. Lord knows how many of them went to where. Um, yeah. But that's not all amongst the United Kingdom. 275 commandos um it says casualties, but doesn't it doesn't claim how many whether they're killed, wounded, or shot. It just says United Kingdom, two hundred seventy five commandos, United States, three killed, five wounded, and three captured. Um Royal Navy, one destroyer lost, three thirty three landing crafts, as you said earlier, five hundred and fifty killed and wounded. Amongst the Royal Air Force, we lost um sixty four Spitfires, twenty hurricanes, six uh, Douglas Boston bombers. And mm-hmm. 10, there you go, 10 North American Mustang MK1 fighters 
62. So there were Mark one Mustangs. They were probably coffin lids or Malcolm hood. Yep. Model Mustangs. Now, Keep in mind, Canada, Canada, Canada alone amongst the Canadians, 907 killed. That doesn't count the, you know, the commandos and all the ones we just mentioned. Right. Germany, according to the German numbers, how much were actually true? We know how uh, the access of evil like to fudge their numbers, but we'll go by. We'll assume after 80 years they're reporting accurately. <laughs> according to this, German only lost 311 Weimar Republic soldiers killed. 280 wounded amongst uh, they lost one submarine chaser and uh, 23 FW 190s and 25 Dormer Dues 217s. Dornier 217s, okay. And how, how many Focke-Wulf FW 190s? 23. Okay. Man, the FW 190 is one of my favorite planes of World War II. I absolutely love that thing. Had a BMW radial engine. How did that come to fruition? Pre-war purchases or just stolen? Well, no. I mean, the German FW-190. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, never mind. Yeah, BMW. Never mind. Um, but, I mean, it, it's you still kind of, by, by kind of hitting pause there and asking that question, that's a good thing because, obviously, the main German fighter was the Messerschmitt BF-109, um, you know, which was an inline liquid-cooled engine, a Daimler-Benz. Uh, DB-13, I think, if I remember correctly. Now, but, were, uh, yeah. were our, the Allied aircraft at the time, in the were they air-cooled or were they liquid-cooled? Uh, well, the Mustangs would have been liquid-cooled inline engines. The Most of the air-cooled radial engines were, were Navy fighters, so they were going to be in the Pacific. Hellcat, Wildcat, Corsair, you know, which, <clears throat> you know, the Hellcat and the Corsair weren't even operational yet, but we're, we're talking Dieppe here. Spitfires, liquid-cooled inline engines, the Merlin. Uh, those early Mark Mustangs would have been liquid-cooled. Um, and, and you know, the, yeah, the British had the Mustang, the Mark I Mustang. Man, I'm, I'm not even going to attempt to pretend like I know much about that iteration of the Mustang. Um, I don't know if there were any Hawker Hurricanes at Dieppe. If there uh, yes, were, they, 20 they, of them. We lost uh, – there's 20. I don't know if we okay. lost them. There was – let me rephrase this. When I say these numbers, it just says Royal Air Force um, listed under casualty and losses. So they don't say yeah. w- shot down. But anyhow, yes, there were 20 Hurricanes there. Well, Hurricanes would have been uh, inline liquid cooled. Um, yeah, I, you know, if you're going to, that's a, that's a great question you ask. I'm not, now we're moving beyond the scope of Allied planes and including the Luftwaffe. You know, heck, man, I mean, uh, well, there were a lot of fighter bombers used. I don't know about medium bombers. If the Allies used any medium bombers at DF, if they had, they would have probably been B-26 Marauders. But um, I'm not sure about that. But the Germans, the Ju-88, which I don't know if there were any used at DF, but they had radial engines. Uh, the FW-190, Focke Wolf 190, obviously had the BMW 801 radial engine. So I'm thinking most of your air power would have been flying the liquid-cooled inline engines that day. So on an operation that was initially designed to try to ambush, if you will, the Luftwaffe and take out as many of their planes as possible, the end result, roughly, based off my bad math, allies 
Now, once again, we're based off a list that says casualties and losses. So whether they're completely destroyed, shot down, or just extremely beat up, I don't know. But regardless, numbers, casualty and losses as per our airplanes, 100 for us, 47 for the Germans. That plan yeah. definitely <laughs> did not go the way we were anticipating it to go. It was actually, and that was one of the first numbers I read, Don. It was 106 aircraft for the Allies. Yeah. And, and 48 for the Germans. So, um, yes, definitely not a good day uh, for Allied air on, the, on that day. And you got to figure, man, I mean, that channel weather, you know, it was in August. I mean, I would assume, I don't know that it would have been cold, but it, you you can all I mean judging from all the modern day footage I I saw of the uh, present day I mean you can pretty much safely assume it was overcast cloudy gray visibility probably wasn't the greatest you know temperatures not cold in August but but not warm either you know yeah so but I'm just thinking from the st- standpoint of visibility for the pilots and air crew. Um, cloudy overcast research undertaken over a 15 year period by the military historian david o'keefe as you said prior undercovered a hundred thousand pages of classified british material archived files that documented a quote pinch mission overseen by ian fleming best known later for authoring the james bond novels Yes. Uh, coinciding Goldfinger. with the Depp raids, O'Keefe states that number 30 commando was sent to deep to capture the new German four-rotor Enigma code machine, plus associated code books and rotor setting sheets. The Naval Intelligence Division planned the, quote, pinch to pass such items as uh, cryptanalysis and, uh, I'm sorry, cryptanalysis at Bleachy Park to assist with the ultra D encryption operation according to o'keefe the presence of the other troops landing at deep was to provide support and to create a distraction for the commando units or i wonder if that's why the rangers were there too uh <coughs> commander units in order to reach the german um headquarters and to capture the enigma machine they um they were a cover for the enigma target so yeah, I'm just trying to I'm trying to peruse here, but no, I think they either the device wasn't there or they just never made it there. But so yeah. do they have it and this is making me want to read O'Keefe's book. Did they have it dialed in like okay, we think one of those four rotor enigma machines is going to be at location W. And not only is this machine going to be there, but there's going to be a code book kind of like a a um as old folks would know, there's a Cliff Notes book on how to set up exactly, this thing. Exactly, yeah. And, 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 you know, the coinciding um, numbers and and letters to the al- the German alphabet to decrypt. So what happened? They they The Allies get there and the, the machine just wasn't where they thought it would be? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of reading this in real time. Um, okay. Kind of perusing this, but yeah. Um, I think the best thing to do is to... Uh, Go out and check out the uh, O'Keefe book, and uh, I know I, I was uh, pretty interested hearing him talk about it. Uh, well, uh, let's see. The number thirty commandos were formed as a special intelligence unit in September 1942, a month after the raid, composed of 33 Royal Marines, uh, 34 Army troops, 35 RAF troops, and 36 Naval troops. It was later renamed to 30 
RN Commandos uh, Special Engineering Unit. Later uh, research identified that the unit in depth raid was number three troops of number 10 Interior Allied Commandos known as the X Troop. But yeah, very interesting stuff. Um, makes me definitely want to add a new wing to the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast local uh, studio library. And, um, you know, because I, I, I think one of the things that at least we can't speak broadly, but I'm going to, us armchair historians, we tend to focus on our own and not so much on what at least a lot of our allies did in less known conflicts. And the right. fact that this is basically um, to the Canadian people and their military what Peleliu is to the Marine Corps um, probably would be justifiable to learn about this and to do more research on it. But it's definitely I'm, – I'm so glad you brought this up because – this is one of those things where you're reading it. It's like you just, you know, I was literally reading and, and writing and doing show prep up until, you know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes before we went on the air. Well, and look, man, I mean, I wanted to delve into this. And if anybody listened and will be listening to this episode and they, you know, they, they get frustrated that, well, it's obviously you know, obvious that, you know, Henry and Don aren't, they don't know that much about DF. No, I don't claim to. Yep. But I'm a if PTO you... guy who loves the European stuff, and I know, you know, you are too, Don. And I mean, we, we, I wanted to take this ta- this subject on tonight because it's 80th anniversary. Yep. It is a fascinating event. Um, no, I haven't read a book about DEP in a long, long time, but I, I felt like we needed to, 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 you know, mention it and talk about the sacrifice and loss of life there. And I, I really wanted to read O'Keefe's book, man. I mean, I'm not just kidding on sure. that. That's. And as we did, and as we've said prior, you know, many, many episodes back, um, and as we kind of did with Sarah and when it came to the SS, the USS Indianapolis, if you're listening to the show and you know a lot on this particular topic or any topic for that matter, and you think you can uh, contribute to the show and maintain a 35 to 55, sometimes 110 minute conversation with the three of us, um, you have to be able to talk and, uh, not lose your voice and, and uh, maintain a, a cadence, and if you can do that and provide some entertainment and some education, please we um, we ask you to send us an email at mail call at wtsp world war and we will happily book you on the show. And um, because not only will you be educating our our audience, but you'll be educating us because you know uh, there's only so many spare hours in the day outside of work and private life that we can read and dedicate to certain topics, and so. We want to, you know, extend our our uh, roster, if we will, to you, the listening audience, and potential contributors of the show, because there's just so much history out there. And as Jeff and I have said in the past, and we've said when Henry came on the show too, one of the things we like to do, we kind of pride ourselves on, is we try to discuss the things that aren't ran over and over and over on back when History Channel used to provide content, and if you right. actually have Military Channel included with your default package and doesn't be some obscure add-on you have to get to your satellite company um you know a lot of stuff's just re-ran and re-ran from documentaries that were pumped out in the 70s and 80s so um we definitely we like to learn new things and um maybe less covered things and i know our audience does as well so please send us an email to mail call at wtsp world war ii dot com and while you're on your computer on your email we kind of hinted at it to the opening of the show 
I wasn't really so much as an advertisement as I just want to give props to the um, the members of Patreon. A couple of them did upgrade their accounts, and so that goes to help support the show. And if you guys want to support the show, but you don't want to do it financially, or maybe with inflation you can't do it financially, that's fine. The easiest way to support the show is just to share it. it doesn't cost you a thing to say, hey, check out this podcast. Henry does a good job. Jeff is fantastic. Don, not sold on him yet, but check it out anyhow. Um, get the word out there. The best thing you can do is share it. And the numbers are growing. Um, as Henry learned from minding his own business at the Rural Museum in New Orleans, he had a couple of people come up and say, hey, I dig the show. You do a great job. Jeff is awesome. Don, we're still, Jerry's still out on, but uh, keep it up. Uh, <laughs> and so, Don, you're the straw that stirs the drink, man. Come on. Yeah, but I'm that new paper straw that all the coastal communities require. <laughs> For those of you who don't uh, live in a no, coastal no, community, no. no, seriously, for those of you who don't live in a coastal communities, those paper straws are atrocious. They do not make it through a meal, and it's like sucking on a cardboard tube. It's horrible. Uh, they are. You are correct, but the, that's not you. That's the, not you. But anyhow, so please uh, head over to WTSP World War II. Um, share us with your friends. You can sign up. Um, you Subscribe on YouTube. That doesn't cost you a thing, and that goes a long way to help. And then, um, you know, just spread the word. And get the love out. And if you do subscribe and listen to on us on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, for you old people like me, um, if you could go to our page, give us a, a review, preferably a five-star review, type up a little paragraph or so so people don't think you're a spam bot. And that goes a long way, too, because what happens is when people listen to World War II-based content and historical-based content on the apps, whether it's iTunes, Google, Spotify, or whatever, because we are on all of them, uh, when you guys add us to your favorites listen to us and give reviews those platforms will be more likely to suggest our podcast to people who are listening to other historical based podcasts who may not know about us and so that's another great way to uh support the show so uh henry anything else you want to want to hit before we uh get to signing off no i mean you're like specifically where you talking about that's the end of my factual information uh Scant though it was on on Dieppe, makes me want to read O'Keefe's book and learn more about it. Um, Speaking of YouTube, in all openness and all honesty, and give the guy a shout out for basically providing my my uh, content and my uh, my training tonight. I'm trying to quickly pull up on my phone, go to my history. Um, just type in, um, I think it's called the raid on Dieppe, the slaughter on the sly, or something like that. Quick 20-minute little documentary, well done by a, a, a British historian. Um, it's taking too much time to pull it up in my history on here. But that's where I got a lot of my 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 subject matter tonight. I was just kind of jotting down notes as I was listening to it before the show. Very well mm -hmm. done. He has some great historical footage. Some of it's colored and um, very interesting. And you guys can go and, and get the rest of the information out there. And um, where I got mine was was the episode with David O'Keefe on World War II TV with Paul Wood Edge. Absolutely. It was done like, you know, two years ago as it so happened, but still. Um, and what we'll know. do is always to encourage you to go to WTS, WTSP World War com. We will include the links to the World War II TV uh, edition or episode on this subject matter. And I will locate the video in which I was talking about. And both of them will be available on our website. So if you're listening to this podcast and get home and you want to kind of finalize your education on the topic um, and get more information, you can go to our website to find those links. That'll take you over to YouTube. And, uh, yeah, I think that's 
just about going to do it. But um, we do want to hear from you guys. We don't hit it enough. We're usually on here with guests, and we're so excited to have guests on that we don't hit all the plugs and all the things that make Proficient Podcast run. And so we do want to hear from you, uh, whether it's comments, critiques, questions, support, anything else. Uh, maybe you know a good deal on a GPW alternator that Jeff might need. Just send us an email to mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. We do want to hear from you. We love it when we get the mail in. Uh, you know, we often do the What You're Reading segment, and we'll get to that here in a minute, but I have a feeling we're both still reading the same book. But we want to hear from you guys. What are you reading? What should we be reading? We're always telling you what you should be reading, but maybe you should be telling us what we should be reading. So once again, send us an email or hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, um, WTSP on Instagram, and just search for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast on Facebook, and tell us what we should be reading. We want to hear what books you guys find interesting that maybe we don't cover on here. Or I doubt it, but possibly maybe you know of a PTO-based book that none of us have heard about. Maybe you'll surprise us with one of those. But, yeah, we definitely want to hear from you guys. Send us an email, mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And I know I'm still reading the same book, but maybe Henry's a faster reader than I am. Uh, what you reading, Henry? I've got about 90 pages left and helmet for my pillow i said last time i was gonna do a reread of that so yeah you're definitely faster me because uh, i'm about a quarter way through but wasn't i correct when i point out the fact that how elegant of a writer he was oh yeah extremely so um and it's been interesting for me after having been through the pacific miniseries so many times um you know to to read Helmet for my pillow. This is probably my third time to read it. I know I read it as an adolescent um, and then read it again when the Pacific was being made. But to reread it now, uh, just in a different context, been very interesting. Um, and I don't, and I'm enjoying it thoroughly, as of course, you know, knew I would. There was no question on that. But thing is, man, I'm not sure, you know, with that. Not not trying to get into a big plug-in thing here, but you know, I told you I was going to be on a, on a panel with Richard Frank mm -hmm. and Saul David uh, at the International World War II Conference at the World War II Museum in November, discussing Devil Dogs, which is Saul David's newest book on K three five. I don't know. I had thought when I finished Helmet, I was going to read Ian Toll's third volume of his trilogy because mm -hmm. I read the first two. But now, if I got to be on a panel with Richard Frank, man, I may have to do a reread of Guadalcanal. Not, not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Because so I was like, wait a minute, Guadalcanal, Guadalcanal Diaries. I have both of them. No, no, Guadalcanal. Yep, no, the, I'm the, looking at it. Yeah. Um, that's a big book. <laughs> it is. That's a big book. The small font. Small font. It, is, it is a big book. That's not going to be a two-week read. Real quick, back to Helmet for My Pillow. And Jeff and I pointed this out early on, and we've kind of mentioned it before with both the Pacific and Band of Brothers. Um, <coughs> when you're trying to take so much content and cram it into a 12, 10, 12-part 12 miniseries, sometimes you have to take the important story and apply the story to the inaccurate character and or person because the message behind the story is more important than who it happened to and you can't go right. develop three episodes to develop character on a person just so you can share the story and so a fun homework assignment if you guys have not read a helmet from a pillow at all shame on you you should read it for the sake of reading it but if you have but you haven't since you watch hbo specific and i'm sure henry will see where i'm going here find a little game 
there's a lot, a lot, a lot of content from Robert Leckie's book, A Helmet for My Pillow, which points out exactly that the story is more important than who it actually happened to. Two examples. Um, on the New Britain episode, you see a very flustered, a very forlorn, a very just at the end of his rope, Robert Leckie, have a GD meltdown when his boondockers get stuck in the mud and he screams, kill me, would somebody be a good guy and kill me? Yeah, just F and shoot me. But Henry knows because he just probably read that chapter. I believe that was actually Chuckler and or Red who said that. They were the one having the meltdown, getting stuck in the mud. In the sand. Actually, I may not be to that point yet. Yeah, um, it happened to Chuckler. Um, there, there was a there's a great character red in that book that they did not have in the miniseries at all. And he had a, a a very sad, but kind of humorous in that way. Um, love affair with his M one helmet. He was convinced that his M one helmet was going to save him from the world. Yes. And when when you got 19, 18 year old fatalistic guys sitting around looking for ways to have fun, their comrade, their, their, their cobbler, their homeboy, that they love so dearly in their group who was so scared and at his end that he lived in this helmet like a turtle lives in the shell. They thought it would be great fun and amusement that Chuckler would trip Red and cause his helmet to come off and another one would shoot up with his Thompson, which they did, and he about had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. They completely annihilated this helmet that he refused. He would sleep in it. He would shower in it. He, re- he would never take his helmet off, even when they were, quote, unquote, off the line, because he was just so terrified and his anxiety was so high that yeah. they thought it was going to be good fun. Let's have a good laugh and shoot the helmet. And uh, they did not get the exact results they were anticipating from that. And, and he mentions, he, he says, you know, we it we felt so bad the way, I mean, because, man, he was just, he was getting Asiatic. He was yeah. getting jungle fever. He was going crazy. And they didn't realize until they saw how he reacted. And then, you know, like he says, we didn't make fun of him after that. Yeah. Um, we felt we just left him alone in the mini series. When Lecky is walking through the P 41 wing and he sees Gibson, I believe. Interesting yeah. thing about that show is when you're watching the Pacific the first time through, you don't, remember Gibson being in any of the damn show. His character was so, he looked like everybody else in the background that you don't recall Gibson until maybe the scene where he kills the Jap, the wounded Jap in the, in the hut. And then the next episode yeah, when, he's, yeah. when he's in the P 41 ring. But if you go back, he was the one who shot the cow on the train. Remember yeah, that scene? I hated that. And there was a couple of scenes where it was almost like, you know, the writers went, it was almost like, the writers, when they got to this, the P-41 wing, they, they realized, well, crap, we need to write this character back in some of the early episodes. They they kind of found situations and made him the, the principal character in that, right. that little side situation. So as you go back and rewatch it, you'll realize that Gibson actually did have more of a role throughout the movie. But when Gibson was talking about how he was on the work detail and they had the artillery strike come in, they all jumped in the slit trench. And a Marine, because they had their shirts off, a Marine was laying on his back praying and he could feel the lips mouthing the words of the prayer on his back that did not happen to gibson that actually happened to robert lecky 
But mm-hmm. once again, are you going to film an entire episode where Lecky's out doing a work detail and, and recreate that? Or you have somebody who's broken down at his wits end behind chicken wire explain it in a very sad more important way i think their way of doing that probably i think having that character explain it in that environment probably struck home more than if they would have reenacted it with robert lecky hiding in a trench and someone saying a prayer on his back i don't think it would have visually came across unless they zoomed in on that guy's lips you know what i mean so i think yeah. that was probably a better choice but there's Here's a lot of stuff like that Go ahead. Here's your quick little tidbit on the train scene where they shoot the cow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not nitpicking on the Pacific because we all agree we loved it. But um, I asked, I talked to Sid Phillip about that scene. Sid Phillips and I had a conversation about that. And and he said, yeah, that, that would have never happened. He said, man, before we got on that train, they shook us down. They made sure we didn't have any weapons on us. Uh, but, I mean, I'm not saying that to – to jab at it and go, they shouldn't have done that. That's not my point at all. But, you know, but because every, every movie, Memphis Bell, Band of Brothers, every movie that we've loved, they, they all do stuff, artistic license, whatever. But, yeah, shooting the cow, that that absolutely didn't happen, according to Sid Phillips. And, uh, and back there, to, like so. you said, artistic licensing. Two things. One, I think they made that scene because they needed another scene to put Gibson in, so he has a reason to, to, to matter later. And right. two, I think more importantly, I think they did it to – they needed a way to show Robert's change in mental attitude from before he went right. to Melbourne and when he was leaving. Part of the character arc. Yeah, and showing the importance of the Australian people. You know, the importance. Mm-hmm. While he was there, he was able to track down a leg of lamb for her family and, and get all these much-needed supplies. And so he was of, becoming emotionally involved. Yeah, and so to show that he was upset that he didn't care that they killed a cow. He cared that they killed somebody's dairy cow that they would use to mm-hmm. get milk, etc. And so, but right. yeah, it's just, it, it does kind of mm-hmm. suck that sometimes. And furthermore, let's say your Gibson's great grandchildren. You want to think your great grandfather shot somebody's cow. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It, those are just always, you know, the, the little things you run into, but um, yeah. So definitely read helmet for my pillow. Um, he actually does go over the Frenchie killing himself scene in that book. Um, I'm not to that yet. I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things like he gets into that book too, and, and, and your father did as well was the dysentery and just the freaking so much is written about, um, the battle with the environment. Not, you know, we all know about the battle with the Japanese, but just the battle of surviving out there is is well documented in this book as well uh, you've read strongman armed correct oh god yes Before uh, man, after. I, that's one i recommend to everybody who says give me some good ideas to read on the on the pacific war but yeah i read strongman armed as a kid i just read it again here about a year ago yeah superb and the fun thing about that book is robert lecky is such a good author um and the fact that in that book he pulls content out of with the uh, a helmet from my pillow but he never refers to himself in a first person. Anything that he pulled out of that book to refer reference to him, he refers to as a Marine or a private. He doesn't mm-hmm. say I was there. He, he, he does that entire book from the third person. And so he replaces his name and Chuckler's name with a Marine or a group. But if you've read <coughs> helmet for my pillow enough, you, you, you see the overlaps there. Yeah. And, and you know, and he had to, with Guadalcanal, man, he had to really, 
stay within a – he had to walk a tight line because he covered Guadalcanal and Helmet. He covered it in Strong and Armed and then in Challenge for the Pacific. I have not read that book. I think I thought I had it. I thought I'd gotten like a paperback edition of it here a few years ago, but I can't find it, so maybe I didn't. I actually I had a I had a customer who was into the Pacific as much as I was, but he didn't have room or desire to build a library. So he would buy a yeah. book, read a book, and then give it if it was a PTO book, give it to me. And so oh, I actually man. have both covers of Strongman Armed. I have two softback books in both covers. So that's kind of cool. But, that is cool. Yep. So I'm still reading the helmet for my pillow. So is Henry. If you guys haven't read it or haven't read it in a while, um, we strongly suggest it. Um, but yeah, I'm just not sure, man, if I need to jump into Guadalcanal Canal after this or do Ian Toll's third trilogy. I don't know. Well, if Guadalcanal Canal wasn't so beefy, I would say you could probably wait a couple more weeks, but November's not too far away. Well, I'll be finished with Helmet probably in the next couple of days, but yeah. um, I can get through it. I, I just, you know, the thing is, Don, I mean, it's before you know it, man, it's going to be getting cool at night. I'm about ready to start reading about some Normandy and, you know, I can't get back into the ETO. But I mean, with all the stuff I got going on, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of have to keep. Uh, I tell you, man, uh, there's a, a an author who's written a trilogy. Uh, Sand and Steel, Snow and Steel, and I think Blood is Peter Caddick Adams. Okay. But one, his trilogy, one deals with Normandy, one deals with the Bulge. Anything dealing with Battle of the Bulge, I absolutely love. Yep. Uh, and then the third volume in that trilogy deals with, like, you know, the last, after the Bulge, kind of the last year. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to getting that. I don't have that on my shelf. Absolutely. And so... Um... Yep, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. And once again, we want to thank each and every one of you. And so for myself and Mr. Henry Sledge and um, the absent Jeff Copsetta who wants to share his love with you guys and his appreciation for everything you guys do to support us, we want to say thank you so much, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>